Good morning. It's good to see you all. Let's start our time with prayer, and then we'll start on our third class on discipling. It's overcoming barriers and excuses of why not to disciple. Am I echoing, Jim? Okay. He'll be right back to fix it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the time that we have together to dive into your word, to help our understanding and wisdom of what it means to disciple. Lord, I hope that it doesn't just become head knowledge, but we put it into practice. Lord, obeying your commands and glorifying you in all that we do. I pray that that is our goal and our prayer for our own lives and the lives of those around us. Lord, that uh, we glorify you, that we live as Christ, that we model Christ, and that we encourage one another to do so. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. So did everybody get a handout? Um, we'll get there in a, in a few, but turn to Titus 3. Just keep your finger there as we get started, but we'll get there eventually. Um, so we've taught about what discipling generally looks like in the last couple weeks and have seen that Jesus calls all of us to disciple others. And we have looked at why disciple at all, concluding that it's immensely important what for our joy and ultimately God's glory. So now this week, we're gonna look at some barriers and excuses for not discipling. And, at, and then we'll respond to those barriers and excuses with scripture, with the goal of answering the question, how can we overcome those barriers and excuses? And the assumption in asking this question is that all of us in this room have barriers and excuses that might keep us from discipling. As much as we may intellectually ascend to the importance of discipling, I would speculate that for many of us, there are reasons why discipling is so difficult for us to put into practice. So I just want to start with the question, what do you guys think? What are some reasons that a person might give for not engaging in discipling relationships? Yes. Fear. Good. Conflict, yes, that's a big one. Commitment. Commitment. Those are good answers. You guys came ready today. Anything else? Sin. Sin. That can keep us from doing, absolutely. So fear, conflict, sin, commitment, all good ones. Um, I hope that in our class today, we'll see that there might be some barriers, even previously unconscious ones, that are inhibiting our fruitfulness and intentionally spiritually encouraging other relationships. But even if you are not being hindered by these issues that we're going to discuss, I bet that someone you spend time with is. Thinking very clearly about barriers and excuses not to engage in discipling will help you be an even better discipler for those who are in your area of influence. In this class, so today, we're gonna to look at five specific excuses. And to think about these excuses, we can put them into three categories. And the first two are a problem of theology. The third one is a problem of complacency. And four and five are the pro problem of inadequacy, inadequate. So right away, starting at number one, I don't want to be in a position of authority. So that's a theological 
problem there. Sometimes people don't want to be placed in an authoritative position. As it is, our culture breeds independence, doesn't it? So the notion of having an authority or being seen as an authority figure is not so appealing to some. So even less so than to desire to teach and instruct others. So how does the world describe authority and how do we think of authority? And more importantly, as Christians, we want to know how the Bible pictures authority. Jesus models authority for us, doesn't he? So consider how scripture refers to Jesus' teaching as authoritative. Uh, we see that in the beginning of Mark uh, chapter 1, verse 22. And then in and through Jesus, we see the proper posture of one in authority, that of a loving servant. And that's going to be a key verse for us. A key word is servant. Jesus sets for us the example of how an authoritative figure can be a loving servant leader. Okay? So in John 13, verses 13 and 14, it says, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also wash one another's feet. So that's the servant leader. In uh, his book, J. Oswald Sanders, it's called Spiritual Leadership, says the following about what he calls the master's master principle. In light of, and his quote is, in light of the tremendous stress laid upon the leadership role in both secular and religious worlds, it is surprising to discover that in the King James Version of the Bible, for example, the term leader occurs only six times, three in the singular and three in the plural. That is not to say that the theme is not prominent in the Bible, but it is usually referred to in different terms, and the most prominent being, surprise, servant. It is not Moses, my leader, it's Moses, what? My servant. The emphasis is consistent uh, is, yeah, with Christ's teaching on the subject. So in Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 through 28, it reads, But Jesus called to them and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, though. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So there's the model, right? So have this attitude in your heart, the attitude that puts the other person's welfare ahead of your own. You'll find even through discipling puts you in a position of authority an attitude of sacrificial love will wed initiative with service and humility. So we are not lording it over others when we disciple them. Rather, we are serving them even if they don't entirely perceive it as such. So we should be very careful to have an appropriate view of our authority in these relationships. Biblical authority is not abusive authority. It is servant authority. And ask yourself, am I displaying the servant-hearted love of Christ in my use of authority? Or am I using it for my glory? Am I leading them to God's word or to me? Right? We don't want to make models of ourselves. We want to make models of Christ. So when taking them to God's word and not our own personal opinions, you are being a loving servant. Don't get big-headed because of your service in this way. That's not the point. 
but do rejoice in God's goodness to use you to bear fruit in the lives of others. Amen? So excuse number two. Intentional discipling relationships turn friends into projects. That's another theological issue. Some people may object if that I engage in a relationship with another Christian that is at its heart deliberately focused on encouraging them spiritually and not merely in just enjoying their company or friendship as the primary goal, then I have reduced the reality of my true friendship to them and have made them merely into a discipling project. So to help us understand and deal with this second potential objection, it would help us to ask ourselves one simple question. What is real biblical love and friendship anyway in the first place? What do you guys think of what real biblical love and friendship is? Not everybody at once. You guys did good on the first question. Yeah, love and good works, right? Amen. Speak the truth in love, right? To one another, but you need to speak the truth to one another. Amen. Okay, those are good. So in John 15, uh, we spent a lot of time on that, I believe, last week. John 15, 15 as well. Uh, the, Jesus says that real love is when we love others as Jesus loved us. If we recognize the example of Jesus's love for his disciples as any sort of model, then we cannot conclude that real love is merely affirming affection and camaraderie. Jesus loved by setting out fundamentally to do eternal good for others as a supreme mark of his love for them, didn't he? It's their eternal good. So last week we read Jesus' words to, from his disciples. Um, it's John 15, 15. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know that what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. So Jesus' friendship was shown by revealing the, his father's will. Right? So true friendship is there. Did you hear that? So for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. So friendship is shown by sharing the father's will. They were not merely a project to Christ, but he loved them by revealing truth. So, and if we look to Ephesians chapter five, the first two verses, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and what walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So again, here we see Christ's desire to set out to do good for all his children as a grand mark of his love for them and a pattern for us to follow as well. We are to live a life of love for others just as Christ lived a life of love for others. Real love sets out to purposely, sets out purposefully to do spiritual eternal good for one another. Amen? So that said, it's possible to make people into projects. We can make a friend a project by demanding rigid adherence to set some program or by not being concerned about the actual feelings of our friend or by throwing simple Bible verses without taking the time to understand why they're struggling. Right? Just kind of like, hey, I don't really want to deal with this right now. So just to throw out a question, how can we avoid making projects of people? 
How can we avoid that? Yeah. So, so basically, to repeat, Jim, it's seeing them as, as Christ sees them, right? Seeing them as eternal beings who we are in this together, and we're in this pilgrimage, this life, as we're becoming more and more like Christ, and we encourage each other along the way. Is that good? So good. A, pro a proper perspective is important. Yeah. So admitting sin to one another, it's being transparent, right? So uh, you're not coming in as the authoritative figure looking down on this person, but you're with them. Being transparent, saying, hey, I struggle with sin. I'm not perfect. You struggle with this. It may not be something that you know as much as them, but you still can go through it together and pray for one another, encourage one another and speak truth to one another. You always want to point back to scripture and not your own personal opinions. It's, that is important. So those are great answers. Um, so at the end of the day, we need to be faithful to God and to scripture in this. There will be times when we have relationships with people who simply will not feel loved by an intentional relationship focused on their spiritual good. <clears throat> Sometimes this happens because they believe your intentional discipleship is out of a sense of maybe obligation, um, not out of any sense of really loving them. So other times this will happen when someone really doesn't believe that caring for their own soul is the most important thing in their life. And that's, that's also a reality, is they don't see it as, as important as you do. You know, so it's not that big of a deal. I don't need to be discipled. I don't, you know, fill in the blank. So for many, relationships focused mainly on a spiritual encouragement may be emotionally unsatisfying. So and I encourage you to maintain a good balance of gentleness and kindness and clarity on this point as well. We want to be kind and gentle to help a person understand and perceive the love that we have for them in Christ. And at the same time, especially with less mature Christians, you don't want to see your way of relating to them being driven by um, their felt needs. Um, rather, you want it to be shaped by God's word. We're going we're gonna to keep pointing back to scripture. So be a friend. Hang out if you can. That's great. But keep in mind that pointing them to the Father to greater joy and repentance and obedience is the best way to love them. Amen? Cool. So number three, excuse number three. I just don't feel like it, and I don't have time for it. Complacency. So we live in a busy time, in a busy country, um, in a busy age of the world. Most of the lives around us and many of our own are full to overflowing with relatively good things. Considering all that we have received from God and in his church, what does it say about our understanding of grace and love if we hoard those blessings to ourselves? So many times... It helps us set the focus on things that really matter in life, the things that the Bible directs as being important. Think about how God has cared for you, has loved you, has forgiven you, blessed you, and comforted you. 
Um, if you think about that, it, it is a lot. So, and as you think about God's love and forgiveness and care for you, this thought should cause you or motivate you to do the same for others. Um, as we just read in John 15, 15. Um, we lo love others because why? God loved us first. Remember that life is not full without Christ. If our friends are not living life the way that God intended them to live, then they're not living life to the fullest. So to choose not to encourage them to live life with Christ is unloving. Hope we heard that. To choose not to encourage them to live their life like Christ is unloving. So it's a bit of a harsh reality. So if, we, if, if I remove the negatives from, the, from that sentence, say it to you another way, it says to challenge them to live their life with Christ at the center is the most loving thing you can do for them ever. Amen? So think about individuals who have encouraged you through your faith and who have challenged you to fight off sin. The Great Commission was meant to have a spreading effect. It's not meant to end with us to go on and make disciples of all nations and of all people. So what if your problem is time? What if you don't feel like you've got time to disciple others? It might be that even with an insane schedule, you can do this. And um, it's good to talk through with someone else, like a close friend, uh, what a sane schedule might look like as well. So it's, it is almost certain that if you look through your schedule, you will find that there are things of lesser value that you could probably do away with and to make time to be an encouragement to others in the church. And then more than anything else, I suspect it comes down to maybe a matter of desire and priorities as well. So, um, I mean, number one is the phone. I mean, that's the biggest thing this day and age, the phone. You, they get you looking at it um, and can't keep your eyes off of it, right? And uh, just that dopamine levels are just like, oh, I like that and like that. And so then all of a sudden two hours are gone. And you're like, goodness gracious. And then, you know, it could be something else. That's just the easiest one to point out at the, at the moment. But um, making good use of your time is, is, it needs to be intentional. It doesn't just happen. You know, so it's, it's something that if you schedule it, it's a lot more likely to happen than if you don't. So I don't know if you've ever considered how expectations can cause us to do less in the Christian life either. So take, for example, your quiet time. For many, if you can't do a 30-minute to an hour-long quiet time with all the good things that you've envisioned, you know, which ex extensive prayer, in-depth study of the passage, meditating on the application of the passage, then a lot of us just don't do it at all. And that's an incredibly unhopeful expectation. So many of us carry around similar static expectation to our, you know, for our relationships as well. If we don't have the time to do all the things that might help, we don't bother doing any of them. So the importance of the command from Scripture should be in view here. Not how well we can perform the task, but that we do it. It's not even, if it's not done to our expectations, then we're not going to do it. Um, the job is still worth doing, even if it's not done to the level that you wanted. Amen? So later on in the class, we'll consider how to do Bible study with one another. Not this class, but later on. Um, and how to pray together. But if you don't have much time to prepare for a discipleship relationship, 
Consider how you can use the local teaching and preaching ministry as a basis for teaching and discipling relationships. You don't have to come up with this huge um, curriculum. Um, so attend Sunday school class you know, it with someone and then meet up for lunch to discuss it. Right? So the material's already there. Uh, meet together to discuss the Sunday morning sermon. Uh, just meeting with someone to stimulate discussion about content that other people have prepared and delivered is still good and helpful leadership and discipling. Right? We don't have to be from start to finish making up all the stuff to teach. Um, it's, all, it's all there. You know, you can use the resources that you have. Um, so that's it for number three. So moving on to number four. It's an inadequacy problem. I don't have anything that I can teach. Um, so we kind of touched on it a little bit. But every Christian has at least one thing that they can pass on to others. I'll give you one guess. Who said it? You did. Gospel. It's the gospel. It's what saved us. It's what we all know. It's what Christ gave us. And if we call ourselves Christians, we all have one thing in common. It's the gospel. So that is something that each one of us can teach. And at the very least, if you don't feel like you have anything you can, you can seek out someone with whom to share the gospel. Okay? So you might think of the gospel as what God uses to bring unbelievers to salvation in Christ, and that's absolutely true. But the same gospel that saves us is the same gospel that sanctifies us on a daily basis. Can we, can we all say amen to that? Yes. So as we discussed last week, the lines of evangelism and discipling aren't always clearly drawn, but the gospel is. So throughout the book of Titus, Paul argues that one of the best things we can do is to remind other believers about the basic truths of the gospel. And this is where we're going to read Titus 3, first eight verses, um, if you've turned there. So Titus 3, starting in verse 1, says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Amen. So we must constantly remind ourselves and others of the basic truth of gospel. You can form a good discipling relationship with someone just by spending time going over each of these truths in depth. As Paul says, they are excellent and profitable for everyone, and that is absolutely true. So whatever stage you are at as a Christian, you always have something you can teach. Um, in your daily life, your prayer, your words, and everything in your life is a means through which you can disciple others, okay? All right, and lastly, number five, 
I am not gifted to disciple others. Others are simply more gifted than I am. Let them do it. So another problem of inadequacy. So we need to recognize that we all have different gifts that we can pass on to younger Christians. It's not simply a matter of theology or expertise in a biblical exposition. You can disciple someone by teaching them how to pray diligently and effectively, by simply listening to their struggles, by letting them come along with you as a model for them how to live. Um, example is possibly of, of a married couple incorporating um, a single coming into their life so they can see by God's grace, what a godly marriage looks like. Um, and they can see what God re repentance looks like as well, because that happens a lot. I need forgiveness. Um, so that, that's just one. Or, you know, or having college or high schoolers uh, come over and, and they can gather together and see what a house looks like, you know, a godly home uh, with little kids. Uh, I mean, the opportunities are there. Those are just a couple of examples. They don't have to stick just to those. Um, discipling is fundamentally about bringing people to God's truth. That is what we have to keep in focus. And so you are to be a conduit for that truth. That's going back to week one, is being that pipeline of God's truth to others. And you're just the pipeline, the conduit that transfers that truth to others. So if at this point in your Christian life, you don't feel competent or confident in teaching others the Bible, then consider reading a good Christian book with somebody, and then the book will teach you. Um, you just have to make sure it's a good biblical book. If it's a good book, then it includes wisdom and in biblical truth that you can discuss and share when, with someone as you read over it. Um, a very simple avenue there. So discipling is not something for you to do on your own either. Fundamentally, apart from their own understanding of the gospel, the most important thing you can do for a Christian as a friend is to help them get involved in a local church. You want to get your friend involved in your church or another Bible-believing church so that they can be discipled by other people in your congregation as well. So who they have, they have gifts that you don't have so they can teach them things that you don't necessarily know. Uh, so remember, it takes a church to disciple. And discipling should never be thought of as an individualistic endeavor, but a community affair. We went over that in week one. Um, it needs to line up with what the church is teaching. Um, hopefully, and that's the Bible. <laughs> in some churches, that's different. Um, so overcoming fears of discipling. So overcoming fears. Even if we get past the excuses for not discipling, many of us will still have certain fears about discipling. So in fact, it's probably a good thing to have some measure of a healthy, um, holy fear about the task before you um, and recognize the commitment. Discipling is not to be taken lightly and a bit of fear is a good thing. In Matthew 18, if you remember the time when Jesus welcomed the little children, Many think as of this passage as just being about kids, and it absolutely involves the children, especially kids sitting right in front of them. Um, but our Lord was also using children as an analogy for how to spiritually deal with every Christian, um, adults and children alike. Verse 6, we read that you don't want to be causing God's children or any believer to stumble. And in, first, or in 2 Peter 
2, verse 1, we find Peter warning people to not follow false teachers. Throughout the Bible, we find warnings against false teachers who lead people astray. And you don't want to be one of those. I mean, the Bible is very clear on that. Not even in the, in the slightest sense. So what you need to be teaching is what? Scripture and truth. By committing to intentionally spending a decent amount of one-on-one -on -one time with an individual, we must recognize that we have a significant influence on that believer's walk. Especially if they see us as someone with authority. And they, use, uh, and they see us as someone who to use as their model. So there's a big responsibility there. We do not want to teach or exemplify falsehood. So we should approach discipling with some holy fear that we would not lead any of God's children in the wrong direction. So dealing with fears or failure and dealing with the general fear of your discipling ministry. What are some fears? So think about this. What are some fears that we might have as we approach in a discipling relationship? Hypocrisy. Yeah, we were just going over that. Anything else? That's it? Yeah, yeah, you know, just being cut off or um, them not following through or you not following through possibly. Yeah, getting it right. But are we all honestly going to think that we're going to get it right every single time, 100% of the time? No, right? So we do want to get it right, and that is our goal. But when we see that we're wrong, what do we do? We correct it, right? We go back to them and say, hey, I was wrong here. And you point them to scripture of why and say, this is what scripture says. So that's healthy for them to see too, because then if you're trying to set this model of perfection, that they'll never be able to attain it. Um, and, and frankly, you, you can't either. So we don't want to model that. We want to model humility. But yes, we do want to get it right. But we don't always get it right. Anything else? Yeah, so the, the confidence factor of knowing what to say or how to handle situations, and um, that, that comes with experience and time. And it's okay if they ask you a question and you don't know, because what should you say? I'm not sure. Let me go look at it, and I'll come back to you. And that's okay. It, isn't it? Like, wouldn't you rather have them say that to you and be like, make something up, and then it's completely off base? That happens too, but... The better thing to do is say, you know, I don't know. Let me go talk to someone else who might or look to scripture um, about this and study a little bit more and then I'll, we'll come back and we'll meet again. It, that, that just forms healthy relationships. And they, it's the same at work or within education. Mm -hmm. They actually respect you more when you're willing to be like, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, exactly. And it, and it, it does spread into other areas of, areas of our life. Okay, so here's a few. Um, we talked about this. Your friends will ask questions that you can't answer. Uh, you'll say something wrong. Uh, you won't live out a perfect Christian life in front of your friend. You're too immature to help anybody. You might fail at this, or you might not be liked by the other person. And 
you hate rejection as well. So all of those are, are real fears that we all deal with. And in all these things, we need to remember that God helps us overcome fear. And we read that in Psalm 53 and 56. So failures, and um, so he helps us overcome fear and failures and weaknesses. And not only that, but he finds ways to work through us despite our shortcomings. So 1 Corinthians, these are all in your handout, the references. 1 Corinthians 16, 10, and 11, Paul did not condemn Timothy for his fear, nor does God condemn us. Um, 1 Corinthians 1, 25 through 29 says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weaknesses of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were no of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So God works through the foolish, through the lowly, through the despised and weak things of the world. So in that description, we find that we are included in that. Remarkably, God at work through us, weak, struggling Christians, <laughs> and he uses us um, in these, these broken vessels of our bodies to bring truth to others. And praise God that a good ministry of discipleship is not predicated on our giftedness, our wisdom, or our strength. Amen? Yes. So 2 Timothy 1.7, it says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So God gives us the strength where we need it. He gave us a spirit of power and love and self-discipline. Amen? 1 Timothy 4.12 says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the belief... Set the believers as an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. So remember what God has given you. That is always really important. Remember, remember, remember who you are in Christ and what he has done for you and what he has given you. Don't let a low view of your abilities discourage you from attempting to be an encouragement to other believers. But rather, hold fast to the righteousness to which God has called you to. Paul encourages Timothy to set an example in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. So also remember that we are not perfect. When we stumble, we need to face our mistakes. We need to show those who we disciple how we deal with sin and failures. We need to model that. So we need to model confession. We need to model repentance and prayer of, thanks for, of things for forgiveness. If you sin against your friend, ask them for forgiveness. If you say something wrong, correct it next time. The world does not like to admit sin and weakness at all. But we can model the Christian life by dealing with it in a very straightforward and honest manner. We're not called to be like the world, right? We're salt and light. So in conclusion, our thoughts um, here, despite, despite the fears involved, discipling is a very rewarding process not only for the disciple, but also for the discipler. It is also a crucial part of the expansion of God's kingdom. So out of his own grace and love, God chose us to do the work. And if you dwell on that for a second, it should generate a heart of thankfulness and gratefulness and humility. Lord, you would choose me 
to be a part of this process in another person's life. So sometimes we need to take the courage that comes from being an instrument of God and just simply, we, we just need to jump in. So God will give us the strength to do the work he has called us to do. So we should thank God for all that he has given us in Christ and look forward to the work that he has called us to do. So to pass all that we have been given on to other Christians. And after all that, I've said this morning, if you are still scared to partake in a ministry of discipling, remember that ultimately God doesn't rely on us, but on his word. He gives us the strength. The real power of discipling is in the power of God's word and its application of the lives of others. One thing that I have learned in the recent past is that you cannot change people. That is not your job. Because if you try and you think that's your job, you're stepping into the shoes of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit's work to change people and sanctify them and change their hearts and minds. You do not have the ability to do that. So. If you think you do, you start to get frustrated by your methods and what you say and don't say. And you're like, man, if I would have just done this, he or she would have been saved. That is not the way it works. So we need to step back and realize that we cannot change people. The word of God does. So the more we point them to scripture, the more that they will change and the Holy Spirit will work in them. Okay? So that's, that's a very re, like relieving thing to understand um, whatever you say or don't say isn't what's going to save somebody it's it's the word of God and the word of God alone okay so things to do this week going forward three practical steps write out your own barriers and excuses for discipling consider the unbiblical reasons that cause you to avoid discipling uh, take the, that list and do what we did today in this class and see if the reasons are reasonable in light of strict scripture. You will probably find that most of your excuses possibly can just be thrown out the window uh, once in the light of scripture is reflected on them. Okay, so write out your barriers and excuses and see if they line up. Secondly is, is think about your schedule and think about how to make an insane schedule more sane so that you have time to start pouring into others. So look particularly for things that you can dump that are of lesser value. Um, you know, maybe you can spend your mornings uh, going to breakfast with someone before work and praying and discipling with them. Uh, maybe after work, getting coffee. Um, just, just little things. You know, not watching so much TV if you watch TV, but um, there, there's a lot of things that you can see in your schedule. You're like, man, this is just kind of wasted time. And thirdly, Take some of the teaching from either Sunday school or, or from the sermons and begin to talk about it with a friend this week or another believer. Even if it's a very short conversation, it, okay, and we, we do set these things in our minds as like, man, it's gonna be this lengthy, it's gotta be at least an hour, um, and we have to talk about all these points. It, it doesn't have to be that way. Um, it doesn't have, it can be a very short conversation. And it's the truth that we're talking about, and that's always just a step in the right direction. Even if it's just a few minutes, that's a small little discipling time, right? And you encourage one another and you move on. So maybe it's just a few minutes, maybe it's five. Um, and start proving this week that you will no longer hoard the truth to yourself, right? We always wanna be talking and encouraging others. So 
Galatians 5, 13 and 14 says, and we'll close with this, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. All right. Any questions before we close? Or comments? Mm hmm. Yeah. It's a great point. So, what Sasha said is we a lot of times overlook the people in our own homes, the, the people right in front of us. Um, we always, a lot of times, we're like thinking of people in the church or others are like, hey, I need to meet with this person. But you, if you have a, a wife, you have kids, you, you have um, brothers and sisters mom or dad, people in your home are really, really good place to start. And that's actually what scripture tells us to do is to minister to the people that are closest to you in your home. That's, that's a hard one because they know who you are. <laughs> and so what, what better model, what better model of humility and repentance and, and asking for forgiveness um, than from, from you? that your, your kids will learn that, um, your spouse, your mom and dad, your brothers and sisters will learn that model by God's grace if you are doing it. And that's, and that's humbling, that's hard, but good, good one. Don't overlook the home. Kind of piggyback on that is I think there's different seasons in our lifetime where we're like being poured into more and then where we're pouring into others more and it could be older or mm -hmm. or younger. It, I just think, it looks different at different phases in our lives. So don't always just think like someone older or younger. Yeah. Or, I don't know. I just think it, it looks different. Yeah. So what Lisa was saying is throughout your life, it'll ebb and flow really of the seasons of discipling and discipleship. Um, disciple, discipleship can come from anybody. It's not just an older person. Um, a lot of times you'll learn something from a younger a younger person in the faith or a younger Christian or just a young individual. And you'd be like, man, you know, and this is all for sanctification. It's all for being humble before the Lord and saying, man, you know, and being open to be discipled just because you're older doesn't mean you can't be taught by someone younger. So hopefully that, yeah, that's good. Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. So what Lisa said is, um, if you're, she likes crafting, but you have a hobby. Um, you can, I mean, name it, painting, uh, cars. I mean, whatever it is, as you have people around you, you can just talk to them while you're doing it. Very simple application. Yes. Whatever you're doing, you can be talking about something. Um, yes. Anne. Yeah. So sometimes Anne said the struggle is knowing who to disciple or who to talk to. Um, but if you're, if you're intentional about it and you're praying, 
and you're looking out for the answer to that prayer, um, the Lord will have people in front of you. And um, guys, who, who is our neighbor? Who is our neighbor? It's everyone, right? So who should you disciple? Everybody, right? And sometimes they will end up discipling you on something. You're like, yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, I, was, I was a little off on that. And then it kind of hones you, sharpened iron, sharpened iron. Are we good? Anything else? Last minute? All right. Well, let's pray. Thanks for coming this morning, guys. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for learning about perhaps different barriers or excuses or fears that we may have. Lord, I pray for this group and this church that our fears are washed away in the truth of your word. Lord, knowing that your word is what does the work through way, by way of your spirit and that we are just conduits, conduits of that truth, Lord. And I pray that we handle it correctly, that you teach us as we live, Lord, our mistakes and uh, what it means to repent and to ask for forgiveness from others, Lord. And I pray that as we do this, that we put on humility as a garment, that we wear it, Lord, as you call us to put on the armor of God, you call us to put on humility as well. Lord, it's something that doesn't come naturally, Lord, so help, help us pray for it. Help us pray for it in one another. Lord, and help us to model it. And when we don't, Lord, know that we know that there's grace. We know that there's mercy. Lord, and I pray that we show that to one another as you've shown it to us. And we thank you for all these truths. We thank you in your son's name. Amen.